Welcome to New Books and Poetry. I am your host, Jen Fitzgerald. When I first read our next guest's work, I was immediately taken to an unfamiliar terrain. Not so much the landscape, but my guide to it. Ailish Hopper is the author of Dark Sky Society, New Issues Press 2014, selected by David St. John as runner-up for the New Issues Prize, and the chapbook Bird in the Head 2005, selected by Jean Valentine for the Center for Book Arts Surprise. Prize. Individual poems have appeared in Agni, APR, Blackbird, Harvard Review Online, Plowshares, Poetry, Tidal Basin Review, and many others. Her essays on art and literature that deal with race have appeared in or are forthcoming in Boston Review, The Volta, and the anthology A Sense of Regard, Essays on Poetry and Race. A native of D.C., she lives in Baltimore and has received support from McDowell Colony, Maryland State Arts Council, and Yaddo. She teaches at Gaucher College in the Visual Art MFA program at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Welcome, Ailish. Hey, thanks to be here. Thanks, Jen. So as a native of D.C., it must be strange to see how rapidly and completely the city is changing. Can you tell us a little bit about the D.C. of your childhood? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, strange is a good word for it. Um, it's kind of science fiction, actually, to go back there, which, you know, I do a lot because I'm only an hour away. Um, oh, the DC of my childhood um, was really deeply segregated racially. Um, uh, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but <clears throat> the city was definitely majority black in a big way, you know, not like 60 percent, you know, or 55, but like, you know, 80 something percent. So. So to me, it was very much a black city and, um, and that, you know, that phrase means something to me. It means something in terms of like, you know, in my body, like music, food, uh, uh, a sensibility, a way of experiencing time and space even, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So, um, it's very obvious from your work that, your life there has informed it, but could you explain a little bit about how growing up in that city informed your work as a, as an artist now? Yeah. You know, um, I think it was, um, James Joyce who said, when I die, Dublin will be written on my soul. Mm. Um, and I mentioned that partly because my mother is from Ireland. And so you know, there are a lot of DCs and, and mine was not just informed by the, you know, the geography, this, you know, concrete place or whatever, but by the fact that I was raised by the woman I was raised by, you know, and, um, and then the things that happened to my dad. So it's kind of the whole, the whole thing, um, how it's influenced my work, I think, um, oh, I think that there was, there was something, um, you know, and I, I, I use this in the book in terms of kind of repeatedly referring to like insane asylums. I, I think there, there was this, this sense of um, insanity, like the sense of like, you know, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result or like seeing people um, having such completely different ideas about what life is and like no idea uh, of how disconnected they were in that way that I think not just growing up in the city, but being a young person, you know, things are like really clear to you when you're young, like, Hey, that's wrong. You know, or, Hey, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I think, and that just sort of stuck with me and, and, you know, sooner or later, these things that stick with you, they, they will out, you know, in your art. Yeah. 
Um, so if you don't want to talk about this, that's fine. But you did kind of in passing just say, and what happened to my dad? And I don't know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's fine. And, I, and I'm fine. I mean, my, the chapbook really is all about my dad. So, you know, um, it's not a problem to be public about it. My dad was in the hospital when I was one, one and a half for uh, an operation on his colon and a bunch of mistakes were made. And he ended up, he came out really profoundly brain injured. So, you know, I was like, whatever, two, maybe something like that by the time he was home with us. So um, he was in and out of St. Elizabeth's, which which is an, an actual you know institution, mental institution in D.C. and um, and then he went to a, um, a kind of alternative institution in Virginia that that you know existed to sort of not put people in front of TVs and dope them up all the time, but you know he did all kinds of you know he learned how to weave and like cook and do carpentry, and they they ran it as a community, you know and um, it was, you know, very cool kind of like utopian thing. Um, so, um, so he wasn't, you know, in my house raising me probably after I was like seven and I wouldn't say he was raising me when I was really little, things were pretty messed up. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for talking about that. I, I hadn't known. And now, um, the one poem is resonating in your collection, is it the view from St. Elizabeth's, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot more um, sense to me now. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, so is Baltimore, where you're living now, um, a city that is receptive to the arts? I, I haven't been there in about 10 years. Um, receptive to the arts, yeah. I mean, people talk a lot about what a great art scene there is here. I think um, I think that's pretty much true. It's still a, a, um, an affordable place to live, and there are a lot of great art programs. There's also an art college here, MICA. Um, and so I think a lot of folks go to school and then stay. So they're, they're, it's a very livable place for artists. Um, so there's certainly a lot of art happening. Um, so, yeah, and, and it's a good place to make things. You know what I mean? It's not There's not so much art biz. Mm that creates that kind of weird competition, you know, sort of uh, commodification part. Yeah. I, hope, I hope it can stay that way because usually with um, places as wonderful as that, eventually eventually commercialism comes in and changes it. I mean, look at Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so let's move into the poetry. Um, I'd sure. like to start with a longish piece. Would you please read The End of History on page 38? Sure. The end of history. This beautiful, needful. Brain damage is like water seepage through computer circuits. Where the water goes, information disappears. But it can leave islands untouched. A synapse fires through unspoiled matter. He says, Finch, Finch, in words collapsed upon themselves, says, Father, Father. And I imagine him then, preacher's tall son, wandering red clay paths, listening and looking up for small, quick shifts on branches to. Letter, the end of history. I don't know if I can read this one. It's very visual. Um, that's that's fine if you want yeah, to uh, yeah. move to mnemonic. 
Yeah. yeah. Mnemonic. Stable for its base. Cobalt for chest and wings. And ballpoint words spiraling around it as if its nest was going up in smoke. His full name, his wife's, his social security number, street address, telephone number of the house where they once lived. The rest, the vast, swan-white, pocked and thirsty page, untouched. Draw a picture, they said, of all that you remember now. Four, letter, the right to code switch. Yeah, I think this is another one for me. It's like the ones that are really visual, it's very hard to read. Yeah, yeah um, I'd, I'd love to make um, some of the text available online for sure. I can describe it also just for folks who are listening, just that both, both of the letters use found text from his letters. And he had, um, he had aphasia, so his language was like really deeply impacted by the brain injury. But he had a typewriter, and so he would write to me. And so I kind of used little snippets, um, which were frequently in all caps, um, and then combined it with, with scenes. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, no, I, I really loved this um, this piece, and I, I hadn't anticipated that you would try to sort through um, the more visual aspects, but it is um, the visual part that I was hoping to discuss next, because um, while there's many aspects of your poetry that I want to talk to you about, um, the organic movement and use of white space um, is what stands out, and I was hoping that you could speak a little bit about your process. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's funny. A couple of folks have commented about the white space, and um, y- you know, of course, since I'm writing about race, <laughs> there was a point, you know, where I was like, "Wow, oh, there's a lot of white space here." Um, but um, um, I, they, a lot of the poems started out with a lot more, and and I feel like part of my drafting process with the more complicated ones. Complicated meaning that I was really aware that I was pulling in, um, you know, detritus from our culture and not just from, you know, my own personal uh, sensibility or experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, part of the drafting was really just sort of going for pages and pages with a lot of space in between as if, like, I needed, you know, with my mind's hands to kind of hold different parts of it separate and kind of sit with them a little bit. And then there was a kind of um, sifting maybe of those things, you know, that, you know, the, the hardest or maybe like more burning things kind of got sifted through and, and, and left on the page, I think. Um, And I'm I'm kind of a fan. I mean, less so. I think my work's evolving. It's probably more noisy now. But it began. I began like the chapbook was very much about my dad and the formal problem of you know how do you write about communication that happens pretty much outside of language. I mean, you know, he he would speak in like one or two word phrases. So there's a lot of charades and a lot of kind of gut feeling and and the kind you know the kinds of communications we do outside of just 
words. And I liked the idea of like, well, how am I going to make something out of words out of stuff that happens that, you know, never in words. Um, so I think I became incredibly attuned to silence, both, you know, in life and also on the page. And then when I started to write about race, I started noticing like, wow, there's a lot of different kinds of silence. Like the silence of like, we don't know what to say and we don't, can't figure out a way to talk about this is a totally different silence than the silence between me and my dad when we would finally come to a hard one place of understanding. That's something I've been exploring a lot in my own work. Um, I've just been calling it writing the silence, trying to figure out what exists in those spaces between what we say and what we mean or what we say and what we say. Yeah. Um, it's really, it's infinite, obviously. So that makes it a little difficult. Um, but I also find that it's the same type of um, synaptic leaps that we make um, in poetry that we do in, in essay writing. And it's just, um, I think in poetry, we push it back up the page. And with essay writing, we pull it all the way down the page. Um, so... Beyond the white space, um, a lot of your poems, um, they move organically. They move down the page. Um, trying to find one right now. Um, in, you know, a counterintuitive way. Um, so you know, you will not only have the vertical white space, but the horizontal white space. Now, does any of this have to do with the ear of the poem? The ear of the poem? Yeah, like the way that you, um, the way that you read it or want it read, or is this much, a much more cerebral space? You know, that's funny that you um, mentioned those two things as distinct things. Like, I think my process, I think when I started writing poetry, I think by nature, I'm an ear poet. I write by ear mm-hmm. and, and I write with my body. And when I was first writing, you know, in high school and in college, my poems were so musical. And, and but I was so frustrated with like how little meaning a little there, there, you know, there was in it. And, um, and it was a revelation to me when I started being able, when I started to figure out how to pull in, um, more meaning and especially like, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty cerebral person. So it was hard for me to feel like those parts of me were two separate things. Mm-hmm. And, um, I don't know how musical the, poems in the chapbook are I don't think they're as musical I mean I think it's still a part of me but but I felt like with the race poems I was able to play a little bit more with that so it's a lot of times poems or lines of poems will they just emerge you know you know music and meaning together other times I might let um the cerebral part lead or I might I might let maybe like a gut or personal instinct lead, then revise it with the cerebral meaning, you know, kind of like, wow, look at that. Cause you know, the thing about race is like, once you actually start pulling out these unspeakable things, what I noticed was there's a lot of things in there that I could critique mm-hmm. and say, wow, that's really ignorant. And, um, and how do I want to present that? Who, who, who do I want the speaker to be? Or, you know, so the cerebral would come into play in that way. And then for me, if it doesn't have music, it's not a poem. Just for me, I, I really need a lot of music in, in poetry. So then, then I would allow, really give like the musical self full reign to decide what got to stay and what got to go. And if it wasn't, if it didn't hold inside the music, then it would have to go. And often the music would then lead me to a whole other kind of level of what I had just been doing. Hmm. I love that as a a revision process. It's really great. Um, For the next poem, would you please read Home of the Quiet Storm on page 13? Sure. So 
Um, the Quiet Storm, for anyone who doesn't know, is a radio show that originated in D.C. And it and then it became so popular that um, clone versions of it popped up everywhere, which then resulted in lawsuits. And so people had to change the name. For instance, in Baltimore, it's called The Quiet Fire. <laughs> um, but it's uh, it was a radio show that I grew up listening to. Oh, I mean, every night I would, I would listen to the show. And so it was on a uh, radio station in D.C. that's actually out of Howard University, WHUR. <laughs> Home of the Quiet Storm. And the epigraph is WHUR-FM sounds like Washington. Yesterday in the alley, a man was found, hair stringy, matted, hardening in the sun like mud. Where dandelion and burdock rise, fill empty yards, and bind the wheels of soundless cars. Spilling from a pile of plastic bags, his body's a waste, my neighbor says, of a perfectly good white boy. But today, in the shade, Young men, buff and gloss, all around cicada song. In waves, the way a breeze might come. High-pitched wail that almost drowns the radio. Just bees and things and flowers. Thank you very much. Um, so let's discuss the handling of race in poetry. Um, I cannot think of any other white poet who allows race to enter into their work on the level that you do, which appears to be on race's term. Um, so is this something that um, came naturally to you? Did you have to give yourself permission to do this? Did you have to, you know, I, I, I don't know how one would approach this subject in such an honest way. So help me out. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I feel kind of cagey sometimes addressing that kind of question. And, he, and not that I'm not going to, but, but because um, I'm aware that it's unusual and I don't want anyone to interpret me as in any way an exception or some kind of exceptional person. You know what I mean? Like, um, yeah. So, um, but, but in terms of the formula, the ingredients that have gone into, you know, me asking the questions that I am or trying the things that I try, um, there's, there's a lot. I mean, there's, there's the fact that I grew up in DC. And so I really, I, I just really was immersed. I was immersed in the, the kinds of things that any, you know, minority, racial minority is immersed in, you know, like being ignored, being misunderstood, being whatever, the kinds of things that activate a kind of self-consciousness uh, around one's racialization, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and um, so that was going on. I, my generation, you know, I grew up at a time when, you know, the rebellion or AKA riots in LA happened, you know, Rodney King was beaten and 
there's also like the O.J. Simpson trial, which was a hugely racially divisive trial. Um, our mayor, Marion Barry, was arrested uh, for smoking crack, sent to prison, then came out and was reelected, which was enormously divisive along racial lines. So I was I was watching my whole world be divided, you know, and they really were like two worlds. I mean, for me, you know, Langston Hughes, the, you know, two, the two Americas, well, you know, for me very much, it was like the two dining room tables, you know, and um Near the twain shall meet. So there's that. And then I think, you know, having my dad, we call it the accident, but my dad's accident happened, you know, it, I was so existentially attuned to what what is possible in life meaning bad stuff you know meaning that for no reason um things happen and and so these were like essential existential questions like what why do, why do things happen and why 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 do people do this stuff to each other and i mean i think i was very when i when i talk about where i'm from i, I don't just mean sort of like dc i mean like when i say where i'm coming from like my people I, you know i probably identify more with like my dad or people who are vulnerable and in in certain ways so i was asking those questions i went off to college i was very lucky to get a scholarship to princeton and who should be teaching there at cornell west and um and so i you know i signed myself up for african american studies classes because I wanted some answers and that, you know, still, this still is the case. I think the only place you're going to get the straight dope about race is in Africana studies. Is that's, that's where people can break it down for you. So that was for me, like I could finally exhale and understand what was going on um, on every level, you know, for both from my, my personal experience, but to me, that's really the least of it. But the bigger question of like this big machine that's at work that keeps producing the same reality for us again and again, like Groundhog Day. So that went on. So, I, you know, obviously I got some, some good training there, I would say. I mean, not just him, but a bunch of other folks that were there. Um, you know, I, I think that's really critical. I mean, there are people that have studied this machine, you know, and there's and they've studied how we behave and how we could behave differently and all that kind of stuff. So some of it is just education, I think, that if we're writing poems about race, but we're really only coming from our personal experience, that personal experience is important, but it happens inside of a context. And we're, most of us, if we're if we're in the racial majority, and, and it's not just a racial majority, we're in the positions of power in this country, um, we don't necessarily have an interest in learning about why the machine works the way it does because you know maybe it benefits some of us or, or that kind of thing so or we don't want to face how we benefit from it exactly exactly and then the other thing i would just say is that um i think i realized when i started writing the poems that um that this this was really going to be a project about ignorance and um it took me a long time to write the book and i think really Total, total. It took me seven years. Um, and I mean, I was working on other stuff at the time, but I also realized that these poems could not accommodate, you know, I, you know, I had, you know, my two babies and I had, you know, now and I was like, now I can't put any, you know, stuff in my marriage. You know, like, <laughs> it's like none of that stuff can go in this book, you know, just very mutually exclusive in my mind for me to do race the way I needed to do it. And uh, so um, I realized that and kind of, was realizing in the drafting process, I mean, I wrote a lot of bad, bad poems and not just bad poems, like ignorant, like racially ignorant poems, because I have all that stuff in my head, you know, just like anyone else. So the questions of how to make art out of ignorance, you know, and art that also speaks to possibility because I'm speaking as a privileged person, you know, the skin privilege, I can't just write confession, 
you know, it can't just be that. Um, so, um, so I knew that like on every front, like as a poet, as a human, <laughs> as a being, like it was, I was going to have to be hanging out in a lot of not knowing and ignorance. Um, so I feel it conditioned me to be pretty comfortable with that. I would say. It's a good space to be. And it's a space where somebody can grow. Um, I mean, you know, Keats taught us hundreds of years ago, negative capability, be comfortable in a space where you don't know what's what, where you don't have to make a decision. Um, exactly. It's, yeah, it's brave to do that. Um, and it makes a lot of sense that your poems would resonate um, because, you know, we write what we know. And this is your lived experience. And I think something that um, maybe separates not you personally, but um, people who are willing to confront this is, um, you know, being the autodidact, going out there, teaching yourself, um, seeking out texts, because I find that so much... <laughs> So much resistance is met for, for good reason when people come from a place of privilege and want to have people who come from a place of oppression explain things to them. Yeah. Um, which yeah. is really not their job, right? Like if we want to know about these things, there are many books. There are um, people who have been publishing for decades and um, we can seek these things out. Yeah. And, I, you know, the other piece is that... Um, I, I, I joke that like now I'm race lady, you know, in all these different places, you know, I'm, you know, I'm pretty careful to think about it, but, but I know like most, most of my white friends know that like, I'm going to rain on their parade whenever I can. And so there's a, um, you know, one of, one of my favorite um, books, I think one of the most helpful and kind of brilliant books is Orlando Patterson's book about, um, it's called Slavery and Social Death. And it, it looks at slavery, like from not only cross cultural, but like sort of slavery practices throughout time. Which, and so it enables us to look at slavery, which is where I started with race, was thinking about slavery because I felt like, wow, this, like, I can't think of a way narratively to get into this thing. It's like rubber coated, it's, it's got such a thick skin on it for how we think about it. You know, and there's just no originality possible so i went back to his text and was thinking about it and anyway this notion of social death that the slave is socially dead is alienated from from family what he calls natal alienation you know this kind of stuff well i think the person is willing to con confront race and I, I think this is true at some level of all status quos if they are status quos that really can threaten you um then, then you have to be willing to experience a kind of social death too. And I think there are ways that I now in certain white spaces, if I don't disclose my racial politics, it's cool. People just assume, you know, but, mm -hmm. um, but there is a, there is a kind of social death and I think it's a good thing. You know, I think, I think it's the beginning of, you know, it's what Bell Hooks calls working at working and living at the margins. I don't like that because I want to, I want this to be moving ever towards the center, but, um, but it is a, it's a, it, there is a, a kind of death there. But I should also say, the second thing I want to say is that, I, you know, maybe because I grew up around a lot of black folk and so this is kind of culture, cultural affinities in, in some ways and just kind of ways of life or whatever. But I have some friends in my life, some friends who are people of color who, with whom I have been able that, you know, some of my deepest um deepest loves and deepest vulnerabilities and not knowing and learning together has happened, not just with my white friends, although I've had amazing, you know, racial awakenings with my white friends, but also with friends of color, that these are conversations that I have had across difference, all kinds of difference, not just racial difference. And, and I, I cannot, I could never have written this book. I think if I hadn't, 
I, I knew all of the sort of forces and fears that would come up and would say, like, you can't do this. I mean, oh, my goodness. And one of the poems has it reports on this one conversation I had when I was at Yada with this older white male poet. He's like, oh, what are you writing about? And I was so naive. I'm like, race. I'm writing about race. And he gets this very puzzled look on his face. Now, mind you, he's in his 70s. Like, he, he was older. But he gets this – and then I could see the little light bulb goes off. And then he goes, oh, are you going to do the dialect? And I was just like, oh, my God. And I left the dinner table and emailed this friend of mine. I was like, I can't do this. I'm not going to write this book. Like, this thing's going to be dead on arrival. This is like, people won't even know what I'm talking about, you know. Um, so I think that what would kind of keep me going on, you know, I would get rejected by journals. Everybody gets rejected by journals. But I did feel like sometimes, like, this, this is a poem that they would want if it wasn't so baldly about race. If I was writing a more elegiac kind of, or writing about the civil rights and not about, like, how awkward it is with my neighbor right now, you know, I felt like they would maybe take it, you know. And, I mean, this is maybe also my paranoia. But at those moments when I would feel that capital D doubt, it was the fact that I knew that in real life, off the page, I know what's possible. Mm-hmm. I know it in my body. And so that that would keep, that's really the blood flow, the real blood flow of the book in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, this conversation can now go in about 83 different directions. I'm trying, I'm trying to find the one that can stay most concrete. Um, so I think that when a person comes from a place of difference, they see more clearly many other differences. Um, so I, too, have had experiences with, um, I'd say, mostly uh, people that are not of means and people that are of color. Um, I tend to have the most understanding of how the system or any system really operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree that the journals that we consider to be the gatekeepers like to play it safe. And I don't know whether that has to do with one, not wanting to offend people or the fact that anything that is seen as social or political is immediately marginalized as like, you know, a knee jerk reaction. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if those two are, are inherently connected. So we're going to go there now, huh? Well, we don't have to. That's okay. I got I got two more poems for you to read. We can skip all this. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, I think this is the part of it that's very, very hard for people to get because it's like, um, like I frequently teach that whatever that graduation lecture that David Foster Wallace did, where he talks about the two fish walking around, you know, and the one fish is like, "What the fuck is water?" Like, you know, it's. And I and I also share that experience. Like for me, race is very much bound up in class. I I went to a private school in D.C. because my mom was the secretary there, and I got to go for free. And it was like mind blowing for me the kinds of houses I was around. I, I mean, I just don't even know if I would have experienced those two dinner tables. I mean, I really experienced two different dinner tables. You know. I, um, and then Princeton, you can you can just imagine. I actually left Princeton for two years because I was like. Yeah. Just, you know, what is this place? You know, I felt like, why do I need this planet? Um, and was convinced, um, I was waiting tables and I was convinced by my regulars who were like, you need to go back there and get that degree. Um, but I think that the publishing world and poetry in the U.S., because it's very, it's very much about the U.S., you know, maybe the U.K., um, it, it has um, it has an aesthetic, and the aesthetic serves an agenda. I mean, it benefits. Do you know what I mean somebody? And um, you know, I see it around race, and and also poems that address 
that anything that addresses the power structure, um, if it's threatening, it has to be threatening in a, in a particular way. Um, whereas in other cultures and at other times, the, the poet was really conceived of as someone that was there for that. The poet was really the conscience in a lot of ways. And I, and these are huge generalizations. Like there's plenty, there's plenty of effete poets, you know, <laughs> in other places, you know, who are pets of power, you know what I mean? With the diamond collar and, um, and the pretty pillow to sit on. So, you know, there's all kinds of poets, but I do think that there's a way that, um, and the, the publishing world is really bound up in the education world and all those things. And that's why I thought Jazz Wonder, Jazz Wonder's essay that we were looking at Facebook on was really nailed it, that there's a culture in the academy. And that and it, that's very similar to the culture in the sort of establishment um, publishing worlds. And, and it's a culture. It has, you know, favorite ways to behave and forbid ways to behave. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I am pretty candid about the fact that I came from a very poor background and haven't entirely emerged from it. But um, when I went to um, my MFA program, um, I, w- I was caught off guard with how um, in the minority I was as a person who wasn't of means, because um, I believed the whole meritocracy. I was like, oh, OK, so if it's based on merit, then the amount of the population that is represented by poor folks will be represented in these programs because they're you know, talent is spread evenly across all races, classes, and genders. Um, but no, I thought that wasn't, that wasn't the case. And it was, um, it was definitely a very quick lesson that, um, I had to pay attention to. And, um, I immediately started to put my accent into check because, um, you know, after a drink or two, my Staten Island comes out raging. (laughs) And it was that idea of being conscious of myself that made me really uncomfortable Um, because I, uh, by nature, I am an observer. And when I am aware that I am being observed, I fall apart. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, the the thing you mentioned, though, about politics, though, I mean, the thing that I think is fascinating about all of this is, you know, everything happens in code. And so, and as soon as you can, as soon as you get your little decoder ring for power, it's like, oh, my God, this is so easy. Look, you you just said X, but you totally meant Y. And, and, um, and I guess, like, the question about, like, politics or political poetry, that kind of stuff, I find it interesting from an essay perspective but I think it's interesting as someone I'm a maker you know and I'm a thinker too but like I I think it's fascinating to think about it from the like what are the like there are certain poems that are acceptable and they they also point at injustice you know they also point at power and, and excesses of power and things like that but then there's there's some way that they they don't actually sort of shake things up do you know what I mean mm-hmm. and the difference between the ones that do and don't are aesthetic difference. They're, they're questions of making. I mean, these could be two people with the exact same politics, right? It's a question of like, what kinds of work they're doing on the page. And so for me, I think it's funny that essentially all of the critiques of political poetry are on the grounds of aesthetic inferiority, right? So it's like, you're didactic, you're, um, you're thematic, you have an agenda, all that kind of stuff. And, and there's, there are poems that just suck and that those are like totally plausible um, claims. But I think there's something else there that um, I find just fascinating as a maker. Like in the next book that I'm working on now, I, one of the things I notice about writing about race is that to write about race is actually to write about possibility. It's not only to write about injury. Mm-hmm. Injury is the allowable story, but the harder story is to talk about what's possible. And we have King and the dream and that kind of stuff. But really, we read that as pretty utopian. Mm-hmm. 
so I think, you know, I think it's, um, it serves power to always be talking about political poetry as wrong for its ideas when the whole thing is still also about poetry. Yeah, and if we didn't um, deter people from being thematic, we, I mean, maybe they would have the ability to to leap over that into where they really want to be, whether it be like the language poetics or, um, you know, alluding to something instead of referring to it. Yeah, good point. Oh, all right, so this is a good transition for us to move to your next poem, which um, I hope you'll read for us, Ways to be White in a Poem, on page 32. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, so this was at the aforementioned school. Ways to be white in a poem. Tension makes a form resound, and so the many lines I am told not to cross. Do not go out alone at night. Do not call attention to yourself. Closer to the color line, the more I am. White girl, fool. It is a while before the other girls correct me gently. Good timber needs more air. Shout out. Muscles flex, quick shift. I stomp. Impious, impervious now. Do not dance suggestively. Hold a stranger's eyes. That first day in the gym, I asked the row, could I? Thinking about cheers, elbows sharp, foregrounded, feet cloud stepping. Never of a cheer as the body went up, as if I were, were not. Branch creaking, rope taut, and maybe you too, whoever you are, reading this, flicker. Do not touch or eat their food. Do not drink. From the same cup. Thank you. I love this poem very, very much. That poem's been rejected by every journal in the whole damn country. And you know what? They're all regretting it now. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> so, um, in what ways, if at all, is this piece speaking to or with Thomas Sayers Ellis's ways to be black in a poem? Um, I don't think the poem is. I think his title. His title, of course, I don't want to get into Thomas's work, but mm-hmm. the joining of the word ways with the name of a race, mm-hmm. that it's an activity. It's not a property. Mm-hmm. Um, so that set me thinking. And, and I think in a lot of ways, most of the, I'd say the whole book is about ways to be white. You know, you could think about that as like a subtitle for my book in some ways, but about the activity of it, whether it's the activity you know, in my interiority or the activity inside of my interpersonal relationships or the activity that's around me, you know, compressing me or, you know, or lifting me up and someone else down, that kind of thing. But, um, so that was sort of the start. And, um, there were a lot of different versions of this. And I finally, um, I finally allowed myself to write about this, this that, you know, that is a true thing that happened. It's an actual thing that, sh- that happened, I should say. And, 
it was hard for me to write about it. So, um, cause it just felt really confessional. Yeah. Um, this, this poem was an example of, um, what I thought of your poem moving organically, um, through the page, cause it does kind of sway and has almost like a, a wave, um, type motion. Now, is this something that, um, you write towards, or is, was this something that just came out during the revision process? I think, I think that that's part of what I mean by music, that there, when a poem is happening in, inside me or coming through me, it's often sort of many strands, let's say, happening at once, um, different musical lines, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'll get them on the page and then try and work with them so that the page reflects what I'm hearing. Um, and that, that one, that's definitely how it happened, you know? Um, I think the anecdote that's at the center of it got told in a couple of different ways, you know, in the drafting of it. Um, and so I ended up settling on particular aspects of it that was based on pieces of language that, that I liked and that fit with the other strands, like the, that series of do not do this, do that, do that. I think so. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so for the last poem, would you please read To Ignorance on page 89? Yes. And so what I should say about this is there's um another there's a little visual piece where the um um in a train station, you know how they list the um destinations and the words for the places are kind of they're in all caps and they're cut off. <laughs> to ignorance. Entering Penn Station, I see a man, hands tracing the slats of a wooden bench. But I keep moving, think He's all right. As departures, Romo, Harris, Revolve, Cascade, at track number five, stops in. Then I notice his bodies still waving, invisible, the current, number full of junk, steady swimming in his bloodstream. Today, someone asks why I am writing about race. I look up at the ceiling's false sky, told shapes, fatal as hope. I have, I say, a gentle answer and a tough. Which do you want? My head's already hurting with memory, like... The time I called by his first name, my professor, who was black. Or when someone asked about my poems, if I would do the dialect, he chooses tough. And I say, actually, that one, you have to learn for yourself. The station glitters with windows dark. How do I look? I say to my reflected self, keep moving, says a voice that disappears so quickly. It is as if it was never there at all. Thank you. 
Um, I had no idea how perfect this would be based upon our conversation to end with this. Um, I wanted to end with it because there's a sense of finality in it. It is as though it closes off experience and moves into the realm of the self. Um, and I don't know if that's how it was crafted, but this is one of my favorite poems in the collection. Thank you. Um, okay, so... I think that I'm not going to drag you through any more um, admirers of uh, <laughs> any of it. So I want to thank you, Ailish, for your time and for sharing your work with us and for speaking so candidly with me. It was really wonderful. Thanks, Jen. Thanks for asking me. This is Jen Fitzgerald with New Books and Poetry, reminding you to support all the arts, but especially poetry. Poetry.